Born in 1968 and growing up through the failure of Reconstruction and the retrenchment of white supremacy in the South, W.E.B. Du Bois would become a scholar, activist, writer, and a dynamic reflection of a century of radical change that he was often at the center of. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. All of our music tonight comes from Randy Weston's 1963 album, High Life. Weston had traveled to Africa for the first time in 1961 for a series of concerts sponsored by the American Society of African Culture. And the album is inspired by the music of the African continent, in particular, the high life genre of West Africa. This is Zulu. Tonight's episode is The Wages of Whiteness, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Color Line. We're speaking with Bill Mullen, Purdue University Professor of American Studies and author of books like W.E.B. Du Bois' Revolutionary Across the Color Line and Un-American, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Century of World Revolution. One of the founders of the NAACP, news of Du Bois' death would break, appropriately enough, during the 1963 March on Washington, the day Martin Luther King was to take the stage. But though Du Bois is central to the early development of civil rights, many Americans may only know part of his revolution in thought. His disagreements with Booker T. Washington, double consciousness, the talented 10th, and ideas from his pivotal early work, The Souls of Black Folk. Mullen will take us on a tour through a fuller picture of Du Bois's life and evolution as a thinker, which turned from civil rights and the advancement of African Americans to socialism, world solidarity, and revolution against white supremacy across the globe. Ideas radical enough that when the March on Washington observed a moment of silence for his passing, they were mourning a figurehead of civil rights that had died in Ghana, in veritable exile from America. One thing that struck me, well, one, the fact that he lived to be 95, but also that he spanned what I think uh, has to be the most important hundred years uh, in American history, probably, right? I mean, um, coming from just after the Civil War, uh, 1868 uh, on to 1963, uh, Du Bois is the American century in some sense. Uh, It just struck me as so odd to imagine a man who was able to read Herman Melville as, as it comes out in the press that he dies just on the heels of my own birth. <laughs> so, uh, it's yeah, such a strange yeah. thing to get your head around the, the life and career and work of a man that I think probably for the most part is not very well known outside of like a baseball card statistics understanding of Du Bois. Right. Well, it's a great point. You know, he always said uh, that world events helped to define who he was. And when he wrote his autobiography late in his life, he actually mapped his personal development to changes in world history. Mm. And, for example, he said about the Russian Revolution of 1917, it, it explained me to myself. Mm. But if you actually look at, say, the beginning and end of his life, he's born in 1868, three years after formal emancipation. That's also the year that begins the so-called Reconstruction Program of the federal government. And perhaps his most important book is about Reconstruction. I mean, he wrote it in 1935, and it's called Black Reconstruction. And he went all the way back to that event to argue that the failure and the collapse of Reconstruction, as you 
probably know, or a lot of people remember, the federal government abandoned Reconstruction in 1877 entirely, and it led to uh, the rise of the Klan and a complete uh, retrenchment on social and civil rights for blacks in the South. And he said this was a historic failure in American history because it was a moment when blacks and whites, after the end of the Civil War, after emancipation, might have joined their common interests and built a different society. Uh, and so you, you can say that he was haunted by that moment in American history, but was also literally the beginning of his life. And he was born into a world that was made by the failure of Reconstruction. And he inherited those failures, and he wanted to analyze them and set them right. And then, you know, at the very end of his life in 1963, I mean, he's, it's so the extraordinary coincidence of history. He dies in Ghana, just hours before Martin Luther King takes the stage in Washington at the historic March on Washington. And his death is actually announced from the stage to the hundreds of thousands of people who are there. Uh, and it's the first they've heard of it. And of course, he, by 1963, had moved out of the country. He was living in Ghana, and he had gone there for two reasons. One is that he was a very strong advocate of African decolonization his entire life. Um, but also because he had ended up by that time being so vigilantly haunted and pursued by the state for his open support for socialist communist ideas that Ghana seemed like a safe haven to him. Mm -hmm. and Kwame Nkrumah invited him to come. He said, we'll take care of you, we'll support you, and we'll also give you support for what he wanted to be his last major work of scholarship, the Encyclopedia Africana, which was going to be a comprehensive encyclopedia of the African experience. So. Ironically, he's an outsider to the March on Washington, but he had become a bit of an outsider to the political establishment and certainly to the U.S. state by that time. So I guess you could say, you know, he was right. From beginning to end, his life did parallel and reverberate uh, against uh, modern times and, and moments that were coincident with his life. Yeah, it's one of those um, things that you point out throughout. Uh, du Bois uh, constantly has to, um, I think, reassess and speak in a different register sometimes or stick hard to some things that he thinks are very important as well. And that's part of the, I guess, confusion of our uh, reading his life as well, especially a, a, a such a prolific uh, writer and someone whose whose life and words and thinking were being tracked throughout by you know readers and other uh, people as well. So what Du Bois said mattered when he said it, and we it's hard to sort of hear it in history and give it credence for its time, you know, uh, as to imagine living through these particular periods and trying to second guess, well, he was wrong about that or right about that. Part of what your book does is is try to point out, well, yes, he was wrong about this, um, but here is why he had to say these things or, or felt he had to stand in this particular space. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book now is that I wanted to recover a kind of Du Bois for our time, um, because he's such a major figure and did so many, like his first book with, of great note is The Souls of Black Folk, written in 1903. And for a lot of people, that's the only book they know that he that he wrote. And it's one that students oftentimes are asked to read, but they don't realize he lived, as you pointed out, in 1963 and wrote so many books after. And his thinking changed so dramatically. I mean, he was he was kind of a racial liberal uh, progressive is, when he wrote The Souls of Black Folk, but by the 1940s and the 1950s, he's 
declaring himself openly a socialist, and his thinking has, has evolved, and he was the first to talk about that evolution. When I say I wanted to write a, a book about Du Bois for our time, I mean, I start my book by talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, in the late 1940s, Du Bois worked with members of a group called the Civil Rights Congress uh, to draft a petition to the United Nations, which was titled, We Charge Genocide. And they were, these were African Americans on the left who had just wanted to use the occasion of the UN's creation of a resolution condemning genocide after the Holocaust against the Jews in, in Germany to argue that African Americans were the victims of what they kind of thought of as a slow genocide and going all the way back to the times of slavery, um, the lack of adequate health care and legal protection, and interestingly, the role of the police in the wanton killing of African Americans, and this was in the 1940s. And in fact, the petition we charged genocide documented a number of specific cases of blacks who had been shot down by police across the United States. Well, if you fast forward to the present, after Trayvon Martin was killed, uh, a group of young black activists in Chicago formed a group called We Charge Genocide. And they were determined to document the police shootings of African Americans just in the city of Chicago. And so they were really paying tribute to a very vital part of his legacy, which was his recognition of the role of the of the police and racism in our society. And that, that to me, is, is an important story because people tend to sometimes think of him only as, for example, the, one who, the man who was a founder of the NAACP, um, which in his time was a radical organization devoted to anti-lynching, but is now kind of thought of as a more mainstream, less confrontational civil rights group. Well, that doesn't explain Du Bois in full, and in fact, he gradually moved to sharper and sharper criticism of the United States across the course of his life. So yeah. that was one one reason I wanted to write a book that would show how the evolution of his own thinking actually matched up with a lot of our thinking now about America. Mm -hmm. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Bill Mullen of Purdue University and author of the biography W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. It's an instructive life. Let's walk back through some of that so we can track that great prolific output and life as well. As you say, I just actually looked up uh, on the Internet before I came here um, a 1960 speech on socialism. And I, was it the, the Negro problem? Is that what it is? Uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. When he is 92 years old. Democracy has so disappeared in the United States that there are some subjects that cannot even be discussed. The essence of the democratic process is free discussion. There was a time when men were not allowed to talk about universal suffrage or the education of women or freedom for Negro slaves. Today, communism is the dirty word and socialism is suspect. And so, uh, in thinking about that, the the book that is, uh, I guess, more canonical for American education, whether that's true in some other way or not, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, you call uh, monumental and overestimated in the book from Pluto Press, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. 
why is it overestimated and why is it monumental at the same time uh, in the wake of uh, Plessy v. Ferguson and the separate but equal uh, ruling in 1895, where he speaks of double consciousness as well. So there's a lot of like meaty stuff in there that we have to think about as, as we go through Du Bois's life as well and think about that double consciousness through his life. Yeah, I was going to say uh, the idea of double consciousness in that book is certainly monumental. I mean, what, what Du Bois argued was that African Americans feel a kind of divided selfhood living in the United States. He said it. He said we are both an American and a Negro, two warring souls in one dark body. And he's actually trying to give us a psychological portrait of living segregation. And as you point out, the book is written just a few years after. Plessy versus Ferguson, which really codifies and brings legal segregation and Jim Crow to the South. It's one of the great modern insights about the psychology of race and the effects of racism ever, ever written by anyone. At the same time, when I talk about the book being sort of overestimated, I mean that in the book he makes an argument that racial uplift, which was what kind of racial progress was referred to at, at the turn of the century, depended on, on the creation of what he called a, a talented tenth. And he said that the, the goal for African Americans should be to at least have 10% of the race given the best training, best education, the best skills, and that somehow their success would trickle down to the rest. Uh, well, this idea is one that he himself discarded uh, by about 1920, 1925. And he, he began to realize that First of all, it was very difficult to, to provide the 10% of African Americans that kind of training. I mean, he had gone to Harvard, but he came to understand by the 1930s how difficult a path that was to reproduce for many people. And secondly, he was influenced by other ideas like socialism. And in 1911, he joins the Socialist Party of the United States. He begins to argue that racism is intimately bound up with class inequality, which was an argument that the socialists in the United States were making. But that certainly challenged his talented 10th framework in a significant way. In other words, it made him understand that that was an elitist conception, right. how black people might advance. And really, from that point forward, he is trying to find ways to undo his own elitism. And part of that comes through um, identifying more strongly with the socialist class analysis and thinking about labor as being at the center of capitalism. And this is really something he argues strongly in Black Reconstruction, that the black worker, he says, not just in America, but around the world, is so central to the creation of, of, of wealth for the few and inequality for the many. So that's a very different understanding of how to analyze race and fight racism than one would be led to think if one stopped reading with the souls of black folk in 1903. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to bring in uh, Booker T. Washington here as well, right? This is right. this is where we're we're kind of moved into uh, the Atlanta Compromise here and the idea of the uh, African-American labor being a, uh, a take what you can get and work hard. And I think you call this uh, as part of uh, Du Bois as well, a kind of uh, Du Bois has a, a sort of bourgeois reformism, I think you call in this. And But at, at some point, he stands against Booker T. Washington, but at the same time, somewhat in the same space, right? To say that you, we have a talented tent, that means the 90% should should be doing this 
this program of Booker T. Washington's. Yeah, I guess I guess your listeners might know that you know Booker T. Washington had started the Tuskegee Institute mm-hmm. Thanks, as yeah. a school to provide vocational training, and he argued that the path to at least assimilation was through minimal economic sustenance. And he, the way he put it, he says black people need to cast down their buckets where they are, alert to trade, and be satisfied that that would give them a place in the world. In the souls of black folk, Du Bois really attacks this this idea, and he and partly because he points out correctly that Washington was willing to compromise on civil rights hmm. as long as he said his vocational program was tolerated. And he, Du Bois felt that was a huge concession to white supremacy, a huge concession to Jim Crow, and his talented tenth was, you might literally say, a counter or a response to to Washington. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, there were contradictions, and he later realized that even in the talent intent idea, and that in effect it wasn't going to trickle down in the way he thought. And, and I would say this, too. Another reason you have to follow Du Bois is whole, the entirety of his life. Much later on, after Booker T. Washington died, when he died, in fact, he reflected on that moment in history, and he said, you know, I was I was too hard on him. In effect, he said, I realized that he and I were trying to do something similar, which was to to raise people up um, after slavery. And it was a daunting task. And he also, I think, understood that they had been sort of pitted against each other in the public arena in a way that was better for whites than for blacks. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. In other words, it made it appear that the two of them were the only voices to be heard. There was almost too much emphasis placed on them as what were called race men who were going to almost single-handedly uplift the race. And Du Bois wanted, I think, to remind people later on that actually Washington was up against the same thing he was, which was a, a system of capitalism and an inadequate democracy that was shortchanging black people. It's time for a break. You're listening to Congolese Children from Randy Weston's Highlight. More with Bill Mullet on the evolution of W.E.B. Du Bois from American civil rights pioneer to world socialist revolutionary when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight is The Wages of Whiteness, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Color Line. We're speaking with Bill Mullen, professor of American studies at Purdue University. In our first segment, we touched on the enormity of Du Bois' life, spanning from the post-Civil War return of Jim Crow to his death in 1963, the day before Martin Luther King Jr. would deliver his I Have a Dream speech. Now we'll look at how Du Bois turned from sociologist to activist, and how his research in the South during the end of Reconstruction 
was the impetus that led to the founding of the NAACP. Then we move to the major turn in Du Bois' thought, the second half of his life that gets less attention in the history books, socialism. From the early 20th century through the Great Depression, Mullen tells us how Du Bois found a new way to interpret slavery, white supremacy, and the exploitation of colored people worldwide in a Marxist framework. The Industrial Revolution and the rise of capital with roots in the enslavement of black workers, whose resistance to their own exploitation mirrors the struggle of the proletariat at large. Well, you, you can imagine the difficulty in trying to, well, I, I guess I should say I can't imagine the difficulty in trying to, as you say, find a place uh, in that world, in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so. Well, I mean, you know, Du Bois has kind of two reactions to Jim Crow himself. You know, he's, he's in the South teaching at Fisk, and he starts to do this really important kind of sociological research on the living conditions of rural African-Americans in Georgia and Mississippi in what was called the Black Belt, just to try to document how difficult their lives were. On the other hand, all of this academic research, he's seen people lynched in, in Atlanta and in Georgia and Mississippi in the first decade of the 20th century. And he literally decides one day, uh, he's walking down the street and he sees the knuckles of a man, a black man who's been killed and lynched in the town. And he has an epiphany and he says, I need to engage myself in struggle in the real world, in effect. And that was part of the insight that led to the creation of the NAACP. He said, I, I need to have an organization that can lobby and fight on the streets and have a newspaper of the crisis. And, you know, in effect, he was saying, I need to become an activist. Mm-hmm. So he, the shift into activism is important, obviously. Uh, it's one of those, again, I think the hardest part of trying to have conversations like this uh, is to try not to have them be, uh, for lack of a better word, either literary or academic, uh, you know, to try to understand, as you say, the the life that is being lived at the time and, and how it's being responded to and trying to get a, a, a sense of that life as it evolves, which is an important thing your book does. You know, I, I can't imagine any of these difficulties. So all these things that happen that are just in our textbooks, if that, right, if they're in the textbooks. So I was, uh, you and I uh, had exchanged emails and I said, you know, I was looking at my son's textbooks for high school and trying to see how they're conveyed in the textbook. What do we find out about Du Bois in American history? And, you know, in the American history book they have there, he's sprinkled here and there. Uh, but again, here's a guy that you could write a textbook just using his life. This is American right. history, uh, but he's only dabbled throughout in this particular textbook. I mean, one of the reasons that Du Bois doesn't appear in textbooks more often is because there's still a kind of a residue and a hangover of the official and unofficial blacklisting that happened against him during the Cold War. Right. Um, you know, once he was, by the 1940s, writing openly in his columns for newspapers that he was in support of the Soviet Union even after 1946, when the Cold War had begun, he was founded by the federal government and... In 1950, he was indicted and charged with, under the Smith Act, uh, with working against the interests of the United States. And this was specifically uh, around his work with a group called the Peace Information Center, which was trying to fight against the proliferation of atomic weapons. Uh, He was accused 
of being an agent of the Soviet Union in this work, and his passport was revoked, and he couldn't travel for five years. And during that period, he lost a lot of speaking engagements, and he was disinvited to speak at universities. And his books and writings began to disappear from shelves. And one of the reasons that I talk about the overestimation of the souls of black folk is is the early books written by Du Bois, which don't reflect this more radical sympathy for socialism, those are the ones that are still revered, partly because we're in America, where socialist ideas and radical ideas are still oftentimes marginalized. So that's another reason I spend a lot of time talking about the, the latter part of his life. Another reason he's not fully represented in textbooks is because people didn't, they don't pay enough attention to how worldly he was. Right. And the fact that he spent so much of his time, for example, in support of India's decolonization, and he corresponded with Nehru, and he wrote very flattering essays about Gandhi. And I feel like young Americans need to understand this as part of American history. You know, students are quite familiar with the fact that Martin Luther King had learned, learned a lot about nonviolence from Gandhi. But Du Bois said Gandhi was, for him, one of the most important figures of the 20th century. And he wanted to use the example of India's fight against British colonialism as, as an example for African Americans to not only support that struggle, but to also understand that the fight against racism in America was a global fight and that Indians were victims of white supremacy as well as African Americans and trying to build international linkages. And I think in the United States, sometimes students are not given a global enough view of history. And he was a, a very, very much a global figure. And that's why I, I concentrate in my book on the influence of events in Russia and China and Japan on, on his development. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Bill Mullen of Purdue University and author of the biography W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. Yeah, it's a it's a, an important point again, and we actually have had uh, uh, Gerald Horn on here talking about Paul Robeson as well, and and it's the same. You know, we come from the same the same point of view. The idea that these are um, men who believe strongly that the the way to well, I think Robeson uh, said maybe it was Gerald Horn that said you know a way to shame the country in some sense by making the rest of the world very clear you know ha- having the rest of the world understand um, the 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 terrible situation here for for African Americans and uh, uh, Robeson as well very internationalist and and this was the idea that the that you had to make waves or or, or enlist uh, other countries. In, in the situation, you know, enlist other countries right. in trying to share the problem that you are facing. Right. Um, well, I think Gerald is very right. And I just, for example, you know, Du Bois begins his work with Pan-Africanism. He's at the first Pan-African Congress in 1900, and he stays with that movement through multiple Pan-African Congress meetings until 1945. And there's a major meeting in Manchester, England, where what becomes the eventual leadership of the African anti-colonial struggle, people like Jomo Kenyatta and Kwame Nkrumah are all there, and they're there to declare their their solidarity with Pan-Africanism. But out of that meeting comes strategies for the decolonization of the African world, and we we know that between 1945 and 1960, uh, literally dozens of African countries gained their independence, and that was the long result of Du Bois's lifetime commitment. To that work. 
But the other element that's interesting is his most famous sentence probably is uh, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And he referred to him as, as, as a person of the, the American century. Well, there was such a prophetic statement on his part, but he actually wrote it first, not in the souls of black folk, which is where most people read it, which is does appear in, but for the first Pan-African Congress. Hmm. And the color line that he was referring to was the global color line. It was the line that had been drawn, particularly in 1885 in Berlin, when the European countries decided to carve up Africa and to parcel out the colonies. That was the color line he was he was really interested in. And if you read his, his work and you track that idea of the color line forward, he repeats that idea of the color line in many, many of his books and essays. But he is always trying to remind the reader that he means that the emancipation of African Americans depends upon the emancipation of people of color in, in Asia, in, in Africa, and the Caribbean. It was always a global concept of freedom that he was trying to articulate. And in my book, I talk about that as the idea of world revolution, not just the emancipation of the Negroes in America. And that's an idea that he draws directly from the Russian Revolution, and it's another very much uh, ignored aspect of his legacy. Not only was he openly in support of socialist ideas, but he supported the idea that the Bolsheviks forwarded in, in 1917, that the task of socialism everywhere was to, to spread globally and to build socialist and communist parties around the world, and that the task of those parties was to support the end of colonization and to unite the interests of workers in the colonies with workers in the colonizing countries. Mm -hmm. And that's why Du Bois started to pay even more attention to places like India and China, because that's where the Bolsheviks were actually concentrating their support. So that is a, when I said earlier that Du Bois said that the Russian Revolution explained me, mm -hmm. he was trying to tell us that he learned very, very important lessons about how to think about global freedom from the example of the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting thing to think of in terms of the the book Black Reconstruction as well, because uh, I think, you know, this this book in particular, I think you you say is you know his primary work or his his most important book, and thinking about it in terms of that lost moment, you know, when you could have labor, you know, which which generally must mean I think every person, <laughs> almost everyone in the country, that there's a point where where these two parties, uh, the a poor labor Laboring uh, white working class, we call it, uh, and and a black working class, uh, should have had an opportunity to to be together. That's right. Well, I think that the poise, what he was trying to show in Black Reconstruction is how slaves and and former slaves helped to free themselves. Hmm. For example, he pointed out that hundreds of thousands of slaves left the plantation during the period of the Civil War and fled either into freedom or to go up north and to fight for the Union Army. And of course, we know this story because we know that there were all all black regiments like the 54th in Massachusetts that fought valiantly against the South. That was critical to him. But the second thing that was critical was that he saw this as a kind of self-activity by working people. So he refers to, to slaves fleeing the plantation as a general strike. A general strike, of course, is when people put down their tools and say they're not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. But he was trying to underscore that they were laborers, that they were workers, that in effect, by leaving the plantation, 
they were withholding their labor, which is what you do when you strike. And it was part of his, his reorientation to understanding even slavery as part of the global economy. And in fact, he ends the book by talking about how one of the tragic consequences of, of the end of Reconstruction and what he calls kind of the re-enslavement of the Negro in America is that it opened the door for processes like colonization and the subordination and the exploitation of colored labor all around the world. But I think the insight that was was crucial here, and the one you were referring to, was to think about slavery as part of really the development of global capitalism, mm-hmm. and that black workers were right at the center of that development, and to remember that they resisted that. They were in resisting slavery, they were also resisting what many, many other workers around the world of his time and by the way, I just want to point out, he, he published it in 1935. I mean, that's right in the middle of the Depression. Right. And in fact, it was the Depression, partly, that threw Du Bois into a study of Marx. Hmm. And that book, Black Reconstruction, is kind of his adaptation and his sort of creative application of fundamental ideas in Marxism about the centrality of labor and the need for labor to resist its own exploitation. And in fact, he tentatively wanted to call uh, one of the chapters in the book about South Carolina during the period of Reconstruction when when black people were actually allowed to vote and were given some social benefits during that period to talk about it as the dictatorship of the black proletariat. <laughs> right, he's, right. Of course, he's, he's taking an idea from Marxism. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not applying it in a kind of literal sense, but what he's trying to remind us in the book is that that African-Americans are workers and that slaves were, and that the society that Reconstruction was was attempting to build was in its own way a a radical experiment in history, much in the way Marx thought about communism. Well, it seems during the Depression in particular, you've got a period of time where people recognize that that life is contingency, right? That you're not someone who is morally good because you're wealthy or morally bad because you're impoverished because people who thought they were just good and deserved their wealth lost it overnight. And there was this period of time where it seemed like you could understand each other. You know, we are accidents of history in a sense. And and it does seem like there were uh, very strong forces at work to not allow that to happen. Yeah, and I think um, you know he sees such devastating effects of the depression. I mean, unemployment I think for all workers is about thirty three percent, but I think in black communities it's closer to fifty percent. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, when he had joined the Socialist Party in nineteen eleven, he had done so partly because he thought it was a way of linking the questions of race and class together. But he left the party only one year later, and he left it to vote for Woodrow Wilson, which he later called a disastrous mistake. Mm-hmm. But he was also responding to something that wasn't happening in the socialist movement in America, which was enough attention to racism. And in fact, he was very critical that the Socialist Party in the United States wouldn't, for example, um, argue stringently that black workers needed to be part of the socialist movement, and that they oftentimes would kind of couch their approach to socialism and not talk enough about racism for fear of alienating white workers. Mm. And he wrote quite a bit about this in the period of the 19-teens and 1920s. But I think the crisis of the Depression brought him back again to wanting to become sort of a deeper student of Marxism and understanding socialism in a in a new way, in effect. Mm-hmm. And Black Reconstruction, as I said, is kind of his creative thesis about how 
someone might take some of the ideas from Marxism and apply them to the U.S. Civil War and the fight against slavery and what it might mean for telling the history of what I called global capitalism uh, earlier. It's time for another break. You're listening to Cabana Bamboo off of Randy Weston's album High Life. More on Du Bois's evolution from civil rights to radical revolutionary thinker when Interchange returns on WFHB. to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Tonight, The Wages of Whiteness, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Color Line, with Bill Mullen, Purdue Professor of American Studies and author of W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. In our last segment, we'll look at the work Du Bois did in anti-nuclear proliferation and advocacy for the Soviet Union and against the unfolding Cold War in the 1950s which attracted the attention of the powers that be in America. This eventually led to his de facto exile, with publishers blacklisting him and his passport being revoked. Finally, we'll turn to the lighter side of Du Bois, his fiction, and how he still speaks to our times from a half century ago in his advocacy for universal health care and his disaffection for the so-called right to vote between two corporate-captured political parties. There's a, there's a chapter in the book called Transubstantiation of a Poor White. Is that something that addresses the kind of genealogy of uh, a manipulation of the white working class there? Well, there's a famous passage in uh, Black Reconstruction where Du Bois uses the phrase wages of whiteness mm. to describe the social benefits that white Americans in the South after the Civil War and, and since earned over blacks just by virtue of their skin color, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, the ability to, to, to go into restaurants, to sit where they want in a movie theater, to have uh, social and material benefits that, that, that non-whites did not have. And, of course, he was also talking about actual wages, you know, the fact that African Americans to this day don't make as much on the dollar as white workers. 
On the other hand, what he was also trying to point out was this was a bad deal. <laughs> and that the wages of whiteness were created, and he was very clear about this, that these social benefits were created by the plantocracy and the elites of the South to try to divide white from black. Uh, this is a long part of American history that explains racism as the unequal distribution of resources, but that come from the top down. And that was the important insight for Du Bois in that book. And so... What he understood about poor whites is that, yes, they oftentimes made bad choices, but they weren't really choices. Their economic lives were being determined by what we would now call the ruling class of the 1%. And what he wanted them was to understand these mistakes as a, a lack of total understanding of the conditions that they themselves were in. And so when he said that the failure of white and black to unite after the end of slavery was a tragedy, he also meant it as a tragedy of, of social class proportions, mm -hmm. as he, he did want a redistribution of wealth. In fact, that was a goal of his entire life, was to try to find a way for the poor uh, and working people of the world to have their due share. And of course, that's one reason he ends up, you know, as a socialist and aligning himself with Marx. Right. Well, the wages of whiteness, uh, I guess, has a, an, an echo in that Bible verse, right? The wages of sin? I, I think it does. Yeah. I think it does. But I also, I, I also like to remind people that when he used the term wages, you know, from a Marxist perspective, which was the perspective he was trying to develop, wages is what keeps you enslaved. Right. <laughs> the wage you make, the money you're paid right. as a worker um, is also what creates what Marxists call surplus value for the bosses, right? right. So it's a brilliant conceit. Yeah. trope to describe the way society was being made unequal. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where as you reflect on your own education, as you go through school, to look back on this contemporary world that you don't think about when you're in school. So uh, if your favorite book is Catcher in the Rye, that was written in 1951, and mm -hmm. the year that, uh, that you mentioned We Charge Genocide, the year that Du Bois wrote Russia and America, an essay that you say is still unpublished, you know, we have a, an education system that probably has more people remembering how they responded to Catcher in the Rye than anything else that might be important, right? So you start to put dates together and say, well, why Why did we think this was important and why didn't I ever hear about this? Uh, but I also wanted to mention, it just struck me as strange to imagine the Peace Information Center was alleged to be acting as an agent of a foreign state, uh, which is, uh, you, you know, which is pretty much all that happens now in lobby <laughs> lobbying, <laughs> is that we have many, many, many lobbyists for foreign states in this country. So it's an interesting um, irony now at this point that that's pretty much par for the course in terms of lobbying for governments that are a little bit nasty, I suppose. But Yeah, but I, I would say... In this case, agent of a foreign state really meant the Soviet Union. Right, right. And I think I did want to go into that then. Yeah, to have yeah. to walk into that Russia and America essay as well and try to, to sort of yeah. focus on what really did uh, kind of close the door, uh, I think, yeah. on us understanding Du Bois and even, you know, to perhaps even put him in a box, a 1903 box, basically. Yeah, the book manuscript that he has never been published, it's the only book he wrote that's never been published, is called Russia and America and Interpretation, and he, he wrote it in 1950, 1951, and it was 
essentially uh, recounting uh, two visits he had made to the Soviet Union, the first in 26 and the like, second in 49. And he was trying to understand how to think about the Cold War. Uh, he was very upset that the arms race had already begun. He knew that's one reason he became an anti-nuclear activist. He was trying to think about what might solve or bring the, the people of the Soviet Union and the United States together. He didn't think that the leaders would. And it's a very peculiar book. On one hand, he's very critical of racism in the United States. Du Bois understood, like a lot of people did, that World War II was going to be a turning point in America where the U.S. was going to become a world-dominant power, and it already had begun to act like an imperialist country, you know, going back to 1898, Cuba and Spain and, mm -hmm. and the annexations of those places. On one hand, he wanted to use the manuscript to criticize the development of what he thought of as a kind of a racist empire that was also clearly repressing political freedom. And he thought by 1950, the U.S. democracy was already in crisis because of HUAC and people being right. sent to prison because they were declaring themselves communist or socialist. Yeah, it's the House Un-American Activities Committee? Yes, yeah. the House Un-American Activities Committee. On the other hand, he wanted to try to extract for Americans what he thought of as some of the valuable aspects of socialism in the Soviet Union. So he talked about what he thought of as the, the better conditions for the average working person in the Soviet Union. He talked about the fact that the Soviet Union had actually stood up very strongly against the Nazis during the Second World War, which was a lesson that he thought was going to be lost too quickly on Americans during the Cold War, who were being told that the Russians were just terrible, terrible people. And at the end of the book, he kind of has this fanciful moment where he says, you know, what the people of an America and, and Russia need to remember is that they both come from traditions of, of strong revolutions for freedom, you know. And he said there's a democratic spirit among the people of these countries that needs to be recognized. And maybe if we recognize it, we can come together and end this Cold War. Well, because the book had said such nice things about Russia and such sharp, critical things about America, his publisher wouldn't publish it in 1950, mm -hmm. and the book remains unpublished. And for me, it's a symbol of how incomplete our understanding is of Du Bois and why so many young people don't know the whole history of his life, and it carries the shadow of Cold War anti-communism over it. And I think that a full reckoning with Du Bois means reckoning with a book like that and trying to understand how he himself was still trying to develop theories and ideas about human freedom and human liberation at a moment in 1950 when, let's put it this way, I mean, the problem seemed intractable, you know, at least from the perspective of the United States, putting itself against uh, communism uh, and, and in his mind, really endangering human lives. I mean, I can't, I can't impress upon you how important his fears about the possibility of a third world war were. Um, and that was such a reasonable fear for a man who had already lived through two, you know, mm -hmm. and they were only 30 years apart. And it, the possibility of a third, he took quite seriously. So I think of the book as a interesting, almost utopian experiment 
in thought about how uh, to take what was essential to him, which was, you know, this human capacity to fight for freedom and to remind people that um, that, that spirit needed to be animated. Hmm. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Bill Mullen of Purdue University and author of the biography W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. I did want to turn to his work as uh, in literature as an author yeah. of some fiction and uh, uh, poetry as well. I One of our program's books, Unbound, featured two pieces of short fiction by Du Bois, The Comet and The Princess of the Hither Isles. And it was at that time I, I really had no clue that Du Bois had written any fiction or poetry. Um, right. Where do we sit with Du Bois as a fiction writer, as, a, as an artist in that way? A couple thoughts. Uh, one is that people forget he was in New York during the Harlem Renaissance, mm-hmm. so-called, and he wrote a very important essay in 1926 called Criteria of Negro Art, which he talked about the need for a, a vital black arts movement to advance the race and to be a place for cultural criticism. And he wrote two, I think, significant works of fiction. One is called The Quest of the Silver Fleece, which was published in 1911, which is really about the post-Civil War South and the attempt by newly freed slaves to, to rebuild their lives. Uh, the second, and the one that's, in my mind, maybe more significant for our time, is called Dark Princess. And he wrote this in 1928, uh, and he, he wrote a novel about an African-American named Matthew Town who falls in love with a woman from an aristocratic family in southern India who is a princess, as he calls her. But more importantly, the book was his attempt to fictionalize what was going on in the Soviet Union and around the world after the Russian Revolution. And the princess herself, we find out from reading the book, that she's just come from Moscow, where supposedly she's been, as the book puts it, inoculated with a mild form of Bolshevism. (laughs) And so, (laughs) and, you know, you can sense that the book is kind of playful Mm -hmm. and ironic in certain ways, but he's really trying to create what he calls a romance about the possibility of black and brown people working together to free themselves. So, you know, I think of it as like an allegory mm-hmm. of politics in its time. It's also this very um, kind of personal story where Du Bois turned to poetry and fiction to articulate his full humanity, you know. So for him to be a full-blooded human being was to participate in the arts and uh, to try to link the arts to his political ideas that were important to him. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I wanted to ask about, and I sort of failed to uh, when we were talking about the Black Reconstruction book and uh, mm-hmm. the, the transubstantiation of poor white, here we are again in a period where it seems like this has been part of the the successful divisiveness of the American mm-hmm. uh, people right now with our new president. Well, I'll say one more thing about Du Bois in our time. In 1956, he wrote an essay for the nation called Why I Won't Vote. He, he, he had voted at every presidential election up until 1956. He actually ran for the New York Senate in 1950 on the Labor Party ticket. For a long time, he believed in the possibility of electoral reform in America. But by 1956, we're well into the Cold War. He's seen all kinds of political repression in the United States. He's, he himself has, as I pointed out, lost his passport. He's basically been blacklisted by his own government. Mm-hmm. He says that neither party has the interest of black people at heart. 
He said they're both basically owned by corporations. <laughs> You're talking about lobbying earlier, right? Right. right. He, he says we have one evil party that goes by two names. Mm-hmm. The other thing he says is, you know, it's, it's two years after Brown versus Board of Education, and he says my government is doing nothing to try to implement right. that Supreme Court decision. Right. Well, he says there's no one for me to vote for. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he says in one place in the essay, in some ballots, you might see a mention of a socialist party. Well, let's face it, they don't really have a chance. Right. Well, you know, the essay seems prophetic in certain yeah, ways. Sure. Um, <laughs> one, you know, 46% of Americans didn't even vote in this last critical election. And we're all trying to understand why, but clearly they have become disaffected by their choices. And in fact, in this year's campaign, you know, Bernie Sanders running as an open socialist really surprised people because he seemed to represent a challenge to the two-party system that Du Bois probably would have appreciated. Mm-hmm. I think he would have at least appreciated Sanders' attempts to criticize the corporate takeover of politics in America, you know, what he calls the 1% uh, mm-hmm. to talk about social justice. In fact, in his 1956 essay, Du Bois says one of the reasons I can't vote for either of these parties is I want national health care. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's a reminder that right. when the Labor Party came to power in England in 1945, I believe, uh, they developed the, the NHS, the National Health Service. He says, why can't we have that in America? Well, you know, here we are, and this is something that Bernie Sanders was talking about, you know, a national health care system. So even though we might say that 1956 essay seems to be, you know, what one might say cynical about democracy, uh, a lot of the things that Du Bois was arguing were inadequate in the system for ordinary people still seem to be very inadequate. And I feel like uh, I feel like he speaks to our time in that way. Uh, and I think that that essay captures that flavor really well. Hmm. Very good. Well, Bill Mellon, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining me on Interchange. Thanks for having me, Doug. I appreciate it. That's it for Interchange. Thanks to Bill Mullen, American Studies professor at Purdue University, for speaking with us. This is Blues to Africa, another track off of Randy Weston's High Life. Next time on Interchange, Standing Rock and Business as Usual. Even elementary schools are now teaching what was always factual about the conquest of this landmass. Northern Europeans came and extirpated as many indigenous people as possible herded onto desolate reservations, dying by the thousands en route, the native people of this land were treated as one race of lesser beings, portrayed as devils and barbarians. What is the legacy of this history? We are witnessing a dismissive denigration and abuse of people right now. It's not 1616 or 1816, but 2016. And the confrontation at Standing Rock in North Dakota, which pits a corporate energy company and their state police force collaborators against native people protecting sacred lands and water supplies, is one as old as imperial colonization. Standing Rock and business as usual, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening.
I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. <laughs>